When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the fitness franchise Orange Theory. I had wanted to do a deep dive on franchising for a while now, but I always knew who the guest was going to be. I'm joined by a man fully dedicated to all things franchisee and franchisor, and that is the wolf of franchises. We talked through the origin story of Orange Theory and the tech-enabled concept that helped differentiate them during that massive boutique group fitness boom we had in the 2010s. Wolf also walked me through the economics for both the franchisees and the franchisor. And throughout the conversation, he compared it to how the rest of the franchise ecosystem work. So non-Orange Theory franchises as well. A very helpful primer, I would say, for franchises in general. If you're in any way curious about franchises, I think you'll enjoy this episode. And if you do, make sure to check out Wolf's work at wolfoffranchises.com. It is exactly the type of niche dedicated content that I love. You'll learn everything you want to know about franchises, and you'll learn things that you didn't know you wanted to know about franchises. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and this breakdown of Orange Theory. All right, Wolf, I'm hoping this can act as a bit of a primer on operating a franchise. Orange Theory feels like a perfect lens to use. So maybe we just start at the top. I think of Orange Theory as part of this boutique group fitness boom that we've had over the past decade, along with SoulCycle and others. But what would you say makes Orange Theory different and stand out relative to the rest of the pack? Thanks for having me on. Orange Theory, I mean, for one, they were one of the first. They're founded in 2010. Today, already have 1,500 locations. So they might not be as differentiated today, but when they were founded, they really were one of the first to integrate technology into these group workout classes a decade ago. That wasn't super common to have a plethora of places where you could go and you know, you're running on the treadmill and you're watching your heart rate on a TV above you. Now you got F45, you got your soul cycles and other type boutique fitness classes that do a variety of workouts, but there is usually some tech layered in to monitor your progress on the workouts and caloric burn and all that. Today, it's not as differentiated, but because they grew so fast, they have become the home for a lot of people who like boutique fitness. And on top of that, or their caloric burn theory on how long you can actually burn calories after the workout. That's kind of what they 
are known for. And if you've gone to Orange Theory, they call it the orange zone. So you want to get your heart rate into the orange zone when you're working out. And the goal is to accumulate at least 12 minutes in that zone. So then after the 60-minute workout, the thought is that you're now for the next 36 hours achieving the maximum caloric burn even after your workout is completed. It's been a great workout for a lot of people. I go myself, honestly, love it. And I've had the privilege too of speaking to tons of their franchisees over the years. Yeah, I made the near fatal mistake of using that scoreboard and trying to compete against myself and 30 minutes into the class, <laughs> they questioned whether they had to take me out on a wheelchair. It was groundbreaking the first time I experienced it. What's the founder story here? Is there something unique about the founder with technology or with fitness? Where were the origins of Orange Theory coming from? Yeah, it was founded in Florida. Uh, her name's Ellen Latham. She had started one gym concept, realized the impact you could get from what we're now calling hit, right? High intensity interval training versus just two hours of maybe a steady run. If you just do short bursts over the course of a shorter amount of time, but ramp up the intensity throughout that shorter amount of time, the effects it was having on her clients, she noticed right away and then basically productized that into classes that you could repeat and obviously do different workouts in different classes so that you keep things interesting and also infuse some muscle confusion so that you can keep getting stronger, getting more toned, getting fitter. But eventually they rebranded as Orange Theory, started franchising, and it was really off to the races. I mean, they did partner with some very savvy operators early on. And something about franchises is that your first franchisees, they don't get the credits necessarily in the headlines in the press when a franchise does blow up and become big. But the early franchisees, they're almost pseudo co-founders because they're working so closely with an executive team early on. They'll give feedback on what's working, what isn't working. And I've heard multiple people within the Orange Theory system say, a few folks in particular that I have in mind where they're like, yeah, Orange Theory would not be even close to what it is today without person XYZ. Because those early franchisees can really set the tone and really help figure out the model. Because a lot of times when a franchise launches, it's not necessarily all ironed out. Everyone thinks of McDonald's, 12,000 locations alone in the US. When you're at location one or two, you still got a lot of things to figure out. Yeah, it's an interesting concept that rhymes with design partners in a lot of tech businesses where you pick a certain amount of partners that you want to grow with and they test and run your product first. And if we just think about the franchise in a box as the product, it certainly aligns with how that works. When you see franchises go from initial concept to actually selling and having others operate, what's that typically look like? Are we talking about three franchises to start, five, 10? What does that normally look like on a base case when you're moving from, okay, I'm going to take this concept and try to expand it via franchising? No, it's a great question. I mean, it really does vary from brand to brand. You have companies like the Vitamin Shop, if you know them, primarily hundreds of corporate-owned stores. And within the last two years, they decided, hey, we're going to start selling franchises. And part of that, I think, can be almost like a lifeline where they're trying to drive revenue by selling off their corporate stores to incoming franchisees. But of course, it's also an expansion mechanism. But there's also other brands that start at literally just one location. Orange Theory, I think, had two before they started franchising. But for instance, a good recent example would be Crumble Cookies. One location in Utah started to franchise just off of that one location. And today they have over 600 stores open and 
crossed a billion in system-wide revenue last year. And they were only founded in 2017. So it can take off quickly. And it's a little bit counterintuitive. But if you have your systems dialed in off of one location, you can build a fantastic franchise out of it. Whereas I think the common school of thought, you want to see a lot of proof of concept before buying into a franchise because that's kind of the whole point. You're paying royalties, you're paying a franchise fee for a proven system. But the reality is of an emerging brand, you have to build proof of concept along the way. Again, every franchise from McDonald's to the one you haven't heard about, they all start with just one location. Yeah, it's a chicken and the egg issue. Exactly. Do early franchises get any benefit from a pricing perspective or how they strike terms relative to those that come in later? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the pros of buying into an emerging brand. And let's just use Orange Theory. If you try to buy into Orange Theory today, it's going to be very difficult. They have 1,500 locations open worldwide. If you want to get into Orange Theory today, you have to find one of the few markets they're not present in already, or you have to buy an existing franchise owner, which is going to be difficult because, again, the first layer and the first option they go to is other franchisees if you're trying to sell. Any franchise at scale, the consolidation typically happens internally before hitting the broader small business acquisition market. But those early franchisees, when they're speaking with the Orange Theory corporate team and they only have a few locations, the negotiations as a franchisor, and I've been in the seat of a franchise developer, especially early on in those first few years, it's a lot of narrative. If you go, say, a whole year as a new franchise and you haven't sold one franchise and brought in any new partners, now every other prospect you talk to, that's a big question. Say, how many franchises have gotten open in the last year? And if you have to say zero, it just plants a seed of doubt in their mind and it gets harder and harder now to keep expanding. So early on, you can negotiate and say, hey, I'll come into your system, but I want this exclusive territory that gives me the time to build out a very large number of units. And then if you have a brand that turns out to be a big winner like Orange Theory, all of a sudden you're sitting pretty five to seven years down the line with 10, 20, 30. I had one on my podcast who owns over 140 Orange Theories. And you get a very large discount on the franchise fees. But I'll caveat that with, that doesn't mean you know if they're charging a $40,000 franchise fee that they're just going to give it to you for 10000 It just means that today, if you were to buy 10 Orange Theories, they're going to say you have to pay the full franchise fees right now. So that's $400,000 if we're assuming it's forty k to secure all those locations. But early on, you'll spend one franchise fee and you'll pay each one as they get open. So you conserve your capital and you're also securing that massive territory. Yeah, as much as not opening a new franchise over a 12-month period is a red flag, I imagine having one single franchise operator that has now 140 locations is a proof of concept for other potential interested parties. So I could see how that balances out the story part of the sales process. You've mentioned the amount of locations they've had a few times. How does that rank on a relative basis to either other boutique fitness concepts or just other franchises in general? Yeah, 140 is a lot. That's a big number for a franchisee. Typically, you only see food operators are the most common to get to that scale. The biggest franchisee in America is named Greg Flynn. He owns about 2,300 franchises between Applebee's, Taco Bell, Panera, Wendy's, and Pizza Hut, and one other I'm missing. Most franchisees are multi-unit owners. 
about 54% own either multiple locations of one brand or multiple brands itself. But most probably fall into the two to five range, and that's where it caps out. So yeah, that's a very sophisticated owner. That's a massive platform, very big enterprise value. Private equity loves franchises, both investing in the franchisor and buying out even franchisees. And we've seen Orange Theory has been one of the brands where private equity firms have come in solely as a franchisee, which isn't as common because they do primarily like to have equity in the franchisor as the entity that's actually collecting those royalties. But with Orange Theory, it's been such a home run concept thus far where I've spoken to dozens of their owners. And I never spoke to one who wasn't incredibly happy with their investment. So yeah, it was no surprise to me when I saw this big private equity firm last year, they gobbled up about 112 in one transaction. Yeah, I think you could teach an entire business course. There's a semester's worth of material on Planet Fitness and the franchisors, franchisee relationship, private equity funds that are involved. It's truly fascinating ecosystem, just that one alone. And I can imagine applies to many different ones. That original question that I asked you was actually about the Orange Theory corporate level. That was all really interesting data at the franchisee level. Where does that rank? You said 1,200 and that being a cap in terms of the territories. How does that differ from some of the other concepts out there and franchisors out there? It's about 1,500 today for Orange Theory corporate. That's very large, likely top 1%. I think what's funny is Food franchises have the most brand recognition from a global perspective. Your McDonald's, Burger Kings, Taco Bells, KFCs, all that. They have thousands of locations. All those brands I mentioned have probably over 10,000. McDonald's definitely does, KFC definitely does. I think Burger King's right around 10 or 11,000. Actually, they might be 17,000. But regardless, all those brands, they've been around for decades. We're talking 1950s, 60s, and 70s being founded and starting to franchise. So they've had so much time to gain this scale. So I think sometimes when you're not in the weeds of the industry like I am, people just think of a franchise. And if it's not that well-known, like those big brands, they kind of write it off and don't see the point in even getting involved. But all that to say, at 1,500 locations for Orange Theory, only being found in 2010, that does not happen often. Maybe one franchise a year that can do that that becomes that massive home run success concept. It is a bit almost like if you're evaluating franchises, trying to figure that one out, which one's going to be the big winner in the next 10 years. I mean, it's kind of like trying to pick a stock. Probably shouldn't do it. Amongst Boutique Fitness, Orange Theory is right up there in top two. The other one's F45, founded out of Australia. They're a similar concept. The classes and the workouts are a little bit different. But for the most part, right, we're talking Boutique Fitness they have, I think, over 2,000 locations, but they've taken a bit of a different realm from a franchisor perspective. They went public in the last year or so. The public markets have not been kind to them. So we'll see what happens with them. But yeah, Orange Theory is top two boutique fitness. And even as a franchisor, I mean, they're really at an elite level across any industry of brands. If we go back in time to the early start and the opening of franchises, understanding now it's Difficult to get my hands on one. But if I were to apply to open an Orange Theory franchise back in 2012 or 2013, what would that process even look like? Is this as simple as me going on the website and filling out an application? How are they judging me? Can you just talk a little bit about how that gets decided and the process for opening one? In the early days, it likely was that simple. 
you'll actually get in touch with them if, if you fill out their form on their website, which every franchise, 99% of them have a link. If you're on their consumer page, you can find a quick link probably in their menu bar, right? That says, go to our franchise website. And then you have a contact form that you can fill out. The emerging franchises are for the most part, all pretty responsive on those forms. They are still going to need to qualify you from a financial perspective. And that's usually phase one is an intro call. And just basically the same thing as if you're interviewing for a job, they're just going to do a quick 15 minute call, basically to make sure you're not crazy and that you have some level of qualifications to warrant their investment of time into you as a prospect. But then you're going to have to fill out another more extensive form, most likely. And you're going to have to share your finances, your liquid net worth, all those types of things, any assets, any debt, prior arrests, potentially things like that, just to get a sense of you as a prospect. Today, if you filled out that form, I don't know. They might not answer. They might have a note at the bottom of the form saying, hey, we'll get back to you if we think you're qualified. But back then, it is a lot easier. But I also want to say that you might have not have been interested in Orange Theory because they were so new. And I've heard from those early franchisees that the brand that you see today is so much better than it was back then. The first logo of Orange Theory was like this orange stick figure that it looked like it was like a high school art project. I don't, I don't want to like, <laughs> but I mean, the point is, is like clip art. Yeah. 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 Those franchisees that I've spoken to, they say, yeah, like looks obvious now, but they're like, no, back then there was a lot of work for us to do. And we weren't super sure that it was going to work right away. If you judged a book by its cover back then, a lot of people maybe wouldn't have even submitted their interest. How much do they care about candidates operating chops. Obviously, there's a financial equation that goes into it and the ability to afford the upfront payment and the equipment. Does the ability to operate the franchise come into play as a major piece of the equation? You mentioned before, those original franchisees had a major impact in terms of the success of the business. I am sure it's hard to find them. And I know you have experience in this world. What is that like? And how much does that come into the equation? So it definitely varies for like emerging brands. Some kind of just say, all right, they can write a check. We're going to take it and we're going to bring them in and see what happens, which can lead to a ton of problems. For Orange Theory, based on everyone I've spoken to in that system, they were selective and they made sure they brought in good operators. But there is a balance, right? Of When I say good operator, that doesn't mean that you need the experience operating a business or even being in the fitness industry or anything like that. That's part of the value of a franchise, especially early on, right? When it doesn't have the brand recognition, you're buying the playbook from them. If you have no experience in the fitness world and all of a sudden you're buying an Orange Theory, you're going to know exactly where to buy the treadmills, how to hire class trainers and coaches. You're going to have a website set up for you. You're going to get up and running a lot quicker versus if you had to figure it all out on your own, right? I mean, you're going to be lost and it's going to take at least a year. That's being incredibly generous before you really like figure the model out and hit your stride. They're cognizant. They have a playbook. So it's more seeing, is this person a hard worker? Do they fit us culturally? Are they going to follow directions? Do they have the personality to be a franchisee? Because some folks don't. Some folks just don't have the personality to be a franchisee and that's fine. You are a business owner. You own 100% of the equity in your franchise, which is a small business. But at the same time, you're giving guardrails that you have to and you should stay within, right? I mean, that's the whole point. It's, they have something that's working. You want to follow what they did in your market, and then it should work for you too. When you start introducing your own ideas and things, a franchise might say, okay, yeah, like let's try that in your market because we tried it here, but we want to see how it works in a totally different market. But a lot of times, especially as the system gets more mature, 
they've likely tried many of the ideas and have spent their money on it and have lost it if it didn't work. So you're almost incentivized as it gets more and more mature to keep following that playbook even stricter because they probably tested everything that hasn't worked and they know and are dialed in on how to get customers, how to hire employees, how to retain employees, everything you need to make a business successful. For the parent, you mentioned there was an upfront franchise fee, which I think you said $40,000. What are the other revenue streams for them? There's this royalty payment. Can you talk a little bit about how that is calculated and anything else that they're receiving from the franchisees? The royalty payment, that's a big one, right? Because that's just a recurring revenue stream. And today they're charging 8%. It may have been lower when they were founded. You can raise that on an annual basis for franchisees if you want. Typically, there's two core fees that they charge on an ongoing basis. You have your initial investment, which the franchise fee is lumped into. The initial franchise fee today now is about 60000 And your Orange Theory investment, which includes that franchise fee, is anywhere from about 590 k to up to 1.6 million, which that's a pretty big studio, I'd guess, and would probably be in a really prime market like Manhattan or something. But there's a wide range there. And that includes three to six months of working capital as well. But the ongoing fees are that royalty and the brand fund, which is just a percentage of revenue, typically a flat rate. Orange Theory Corporate can use that to hire employees for marketing, to do television, national campaigns, billboard marketing, anything that they see fit to help the strength of the system overall and increase brand awareness and exposure. And then aside from that, a lot of the best franchises, and this might be a turnoff to folks, but in reality, it should actually be a positive at the end of the day. As franchises grow, yes, they're collecting that royalty stream, but the smartest ones are also becoming massive distributors in that they are now a supply company to their franchisees. So Easy example is food franchises. As you're scaling, you know, as McDonald's scales, they're now selling the potatoes to other franchisees to make French fries from. And they're also selling the napkins and, you know, the plastic forks and knives and those types of things to their franchisees. So they become a supply company as they scale. And Orange Theory does that with their treadmills because they're working with some manufacturer and they are the middleman that facilitates all those purchases and It could be that they're making direct margin on these products, or it could be that they have some type of agreement with the supplier and that they're getting rebates effectively based on the volume of purchases from their franchisees throughout the year. So royalty stream is a massive one, but that supplier stream is also incredibly lucrative over time. And especially if you think about it today, Orange Theory Corporate right, has 1,500 customers worldwide for that distribution side. Yeah, do you have any sense of when you add up the 8% plus what some of those other equipment costs or supplier costs come into play, how much of revenues are actually going back to the Orange Theory parent? I know how to find this because I'm a franchise nerd. There's a document called the Franchise Disclosure Document. All this information is in there. I mean, this is like a multi-hundred page document. It's, It's effectively the 10K that you see for equities, but it's called an FDD for franchises. So a lot of these statistics are in there. For the supplier revenue, they did about $16 million in 2021. That's the most recent that I've seen further. And that was just off required purchases from franchisees. Another entity that they own, because a lot of them will create a separate entity that is collecting the revenues from their 
distribution or supplying business, which separates from the franchisor entity that basically just collects franchise fees, the marketing fund, and the royalty stream. But their total revenue in 2021 was about $92.7 million, And that's the franchisor entity. That gives you a, a decent idea of what they're doing on an annual basis in terms of revenue. If we just say they're getting 20%, $16 million of 92 fudging it a little bit, but 20% of the revenue is coming from the supplier costs. It's a pretty nice differentiated stream. Yeah. Just remember, so the 20% is coming just from their required purchases by franchisees, but they also have that separate entity that's a carve out that's doing another 51 million. It's 92.7 total plus that 51. And it's differentiated revenue. I think there's such a recurring nature to even the supplying portion of it because their franchisees are locked in to buy through them. So not only are the royalties the ultimate form of recurring revenue, I like comparing it to SaaS. SaaS model is fantastic, of course, but customer churn is usually the biggest issue. If you think about royalties in the context of like, that's a subscription, but instead of a software product, your franchisees are buying, I call it business as a service. The only way that a franchisor's customers, and I'm using air quotes for them, their customers or their franchisees, the only way they churn out is if they go out of business, which when you have a fantastic concept like Orange Theory, so far, close to 13 years into their journey, that doesn't happen very often, if ever. So it really is an incredible form of recurring revenue. And that's, of course, why you see private equity loves getting involved with these businesses. Okay. So we switch gears to franchisees. Again, we have the conversation. I'm ready to open up my Orange Theory franchise. You mentioned that major 500000 to $1.6 million, I think, upfront cost. Is the parent helping me out with financing some of that? Am I responsible for doing that on my own? How much of that am I wearing right off the bat upfront and required to pay in terms of cash out of my pocket? At this stage, given their development, they have a lot higher proof of concept than the early days where with emerging franchises in general, a lot of lenders don't really want to touch it. You can get into some alternative lenders that will, but it's high interest rates. We're talking like 15% and potentially having to sign a personal guarantee. Any emerging franchise, it's tougher to actually attain a loan that you're not betting the house on. If you are getting a loan, you're going to have to buy a house and put that personal guarantee down. And some of the first Orange Theory franchisees, one of the ones I'm thinking of, did sign that. Of course, worked out. There are the horror stories where someone buys into a brand that is not a good brand and things don't go well and can get ugly. But today, yeah, I mean, you're likely able to get a SBA loan for probably cover, I guess, for Orange Theory up to 90% because they have such a heavy proof of concept. A lot of the SBA lenders like to see at least, at least 100 locations open for a franchise. There's certain banks like Live Oak Bank is a big one in franchising that they have a whole division dedicated to franchises and they're constantly evaluating new concepts. But I also do just want to say on that investment, they're required to give a wide range because they need to account for every geography, every potential size of their model up to the highest square footage in the highest or the most expensive market. And again, they also do build in additional capital into that for your first three months at least. Some brands will do six months. Orange Theory does three months, but they have a line item in there so that once you actually spend all the money on opening your location and packaging in your pre-sales and your grand opening advertising to make people aware that you're the new kid on the block and new business in town, they'll also build in that additional line item for capital so that you can pay your employees as you're ramping up your cash flow. If I step back and let's just use the bottom end of the range, use 500,000 
for an easy number. I am expected to have 500,000 out of my pocket for the launch. Is there anything that I'm spending money on that might be termed out? I know Peloton, let me buy now and pay later. Is there anything with the equipment or the rent, which maybe might not be as extreme up front? For Orange Theory, you can get a loan. But yeah, if you are referring to back in the day, yeah, I mean, you're going to have to come up with that money somehow. Some landlords will give deals on the leases where maybe you're getting a couple months free. But yeah, that is a bit of a barrier in franchising it is the cash up front that you need. So if it's not a brand that you can get a loan for that doesn't have the proof of concept, you're, you're going to need the capital. That's kind of the unfortunate reality. And the only caveat to it is I have heard there are regional banks and lesser known banks out there. They kind of operate, honestly, on a relationship level with folks. And if they like you and run them through your business plan and say it's early days of Orange Theory, you have a well-drawn up business plan. You're sharing the details of Orange Theory's playbook with them. And you can kind of just sell them on why it'll work. And I think it's a bit of a gamble on the underwriter's part, but they're betting that the concept's going to work. And then they're able to now underwrite more loans for that brand and that franchisee, right? Because they're hopefully planning to open five, six, seven, 10 plus locations. And once you open up the location, the revenue model feels fairly straightforward. Number of classes you have multiplied by the attendance in each class. We know that there's a percentage of the revenue which is being delivered back to the parent that, again, it's going to be fairly straightforward as a percentage. How are instructors paid? That feels like one of the variable costs that comes into play. Is that on a flat rate or is there something related to attendance that they're paid? I believe it's a flat rate per class. There could be franchisees, though, who at this point, we mentioned that 140 location owner who that's just such a massive scale. You can afford then to have W-2s. Not every Orange Theory is necessarily created equal in the sense of if you're working at a location that's just owned by, say, a two location owner, that's very different than working in the 140 plus owners platform of Orange Theories because a lot more room for upward mobility probably better benefits that you can get. So I guess it varies at this stage. But from what I understand early on, those coaches were paid just on a per class basis. And attendance was more up to the franchisee to drive customers through the door. And it's a membership model. You sign up for four classes a month. It's just a flat rate or eight classes a month. Or I think there's one final tier where that's the highest monthly subscription for your membership. Yeah, a wise move by every gym membership model to get some of (laughs) those payments done up front, tweak the working capital balance a little bit there. Is there a rule of thumb for the percentage utilization or percentage of class that needs to be attended in order for the business to be break even? How do you think about a franchise going from in the red to the black? There is. All the boutiques typically have that. I'm drawing a blank on Orange Theories, but I've spoken to a few F45 owners. There's was 80 or 85 members was break even. That makes it seem a lot less daunting when you do that too, right? Forget the big numbers, forget the hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue that you need to earn X profit. All you need to do is get this many members paying you on a monthly basis and you're at break even. And from there, we start becoming profitable. So that is the boutique way. It becomes a lot less daunting when you think about it in like a per user basis or just a number. Many, many years ago, I looked at a boutique fitness and it was like 50% of classes need to be attended. And it's a much lower number than I would have expected it to be. And that's really nice knowing that everything above that drops to the bottom line, more or less. 
when you think about break even, is there a general rule of thumb for these new openings to hit break even, payback period, anything along those lines, which has proven out? So for Orange Theory, and this is coming from uh, Jamie Weeks, who is the name of the person who owns the 140 plus locations. I believe the model was breaking even in the presale as far as signups that they would get before opening. And then within three months, the cash flow would actually hit that break even point. So he went from one to 12 locations very quickly in like a few years. And then he took on private equity money. And that's how he's expanded to 140. But I think between zero and three months for Jamie is what he was seeing. It was just a cash flow machine. Customers loved it and would come in and they had an interesting real estate strategy. Generally, Orange Theory did at large, which was to follow Whole Foods effectively because they felt like that was an overlapping customer base for them. And it was also just a cheap way for them to piggyback off of some bigger real estate departments that they didn't necessarily have at the time. Across other franchises, you'll often see that. And that's honestly a great metric to kind of ask about if you're evaluating any franchise. I had Massage Envy franchise owners who came in when the system was at about 300 locations. And they had heard from the franchisor the payback would be at month nine. The average in the system is what they were seeing for when you break even and start becoming cash flow positive. That's really, really, really quick for a franchise to do that. So I do want to say that that's a brand that is dialed in. And 300 locations, that's a lot of proof of concept. Those folks asked all the franchisees because anytime you're evaluating a franchise, you do get to speak to existing owners. And that was their key question was just seeing if every franchisee they spoke to felt that that was an accurate reflection of how quick it took them. Everyone that I talked to said, yes, they opened locations and they absolutely dominated. And then they hit those marks as well. And some even quicker. And is there an average monthly cash flow that, let's say, a mid-tier Orange Theory is spitting out? Or do you have any numbers for what any of these franchisees are generating on a monthly basis at their locations? So I know the average gross, it's 1142000 is their average gross revenue. That's a high average revenue, like very high average revenue. And just to give a point of comparison, Orange Theory and F45 are kind of the biggest names for these boutique fitness. F45s, it's a lower investment for their locations, but average revenue of about 355K. And they're still making EBITDA margins, the F45 franchisees. They're public. You can check this stuff out in their S1. I know a year ago, they were making margins in excess of 30%. The franchisees that I've spoke to in that system say that that's accurate as well. So Orange Theory's probably got a little bit higher cost given that their locations are a bit bigger. But still, margins are incredibly healthy, and I would expect them to be near 30% as well. And based on the franchisees I've spoken to and heard their profitability on locations, 30% of that 1.1 mil seems in the realm of being pretty accurate. Even if they're making 300000 on an unlevered basis for some capital investment requirements in terms of equipment and whatnot, that's pretty solid on whether it's a $500,000 investment or whether it is the higher end of that spectrum, which I'm sure the range moves up in terms of that 300000 being a higher number if you're in a higher tier location as well. Where does the capital investment come in in terms of, I'm sure some of the equipment needs to be replaced, how much cash needs to be reinvested back into the business in terms of just maintenance expenses? The equipment is definitely like the biggest CapEx expenditure. I know in the initial stages, it's about 150 to probably 250 just for like those treadmills, their OTB system and all that. 
every five years, there's likely a revamp of sorts. And I can go to more treadmills, modernizing some of the equipment in there, as well as even things like the signage outside. Maybe there's a new logo. Maybe the franchise is doing a system-wide rebrand. And that can always be a really difficult conversation with franchisees. Some of these big neon signs that you see cost 5, 10, 15 grand each. If you're a 10 to 20 unit owner, you're kind of sitting there saying, hey, like my stores are doing fine. I don't want to shell out 100 grand just for signs. But obviously, right, there's a big importance to brand continuity. And there's a lot of thought and strategy that goes into these things. I would expect most franchises have this written into their agreements that you're going to be asked to budget effectively, usually in the realm of 25 to 50K per year over a five-year period, and that they have the ability for once every five years to ask for that maximum limit of reinvesting into your business, whether that's painting the walls, forms theory, buying new treadmills, whatever you want to call it, but just making sure that the appearance is up to their desired standard. So you have requirement to keep equipment up to date, maintain equipment, do some signage. Are there other marketing costs that are requirements as well and anything else that you're required to do as an operator? Most franchises in Orange Theory, of course, is no different. You have that 3% today that's going to Orange Theory corporate right off the top of your revenue, and that's for system-wide marketing. But they're also expecting you to do some local marketing. So that can be as low as $1,500 a month. This one, that local marketing line item, I think people, for one, people see it within the context of all their other expenses and they think, I don't want to have to spend this on top of all the other fees I'm paying. But the reality is for any business, you have to do some form of local marketing. So these franchisors put that in there more so from the perspective, just to make sure that their franchisees know that they have to be spending dollars locally to drive customers and drive awareness. But the reality is, is if your locations are performing well, you're profitable, you're within at least the average of the franchise's system, they're not going to be auditing you saying, hey, how much are you spending on local marketing? If you're performing well, you're fine. But they have those things written in their phone, like, again, the local marketing perspective, so that if you're not performing well, and you're nine months in, and then they audit you and they see, oh, hey, you haven't spent a single dime for any local marketing, whether it's direct mail, social media ads that's geo-targeted, whatever the case is, to them, that's a red flag. And that, that could be an indicator of maybe why you're not performing. Or worse, the winners sometimes get to have different rules than everybody else around them. And uh, sometimes I think that's uh, warranted in the system. You mentioned the 1500 is getting to a point where you might have saturation towards the tipping point where you have a certain point where you start cannibalizing existing locations. How am I protected? Is that written into my contract? And is it just a matter of zip code? Is it mileage? And I'm honestly curious, you mentioned, I think for some of the fast food chains, 17,000 locations, how different the equation is for food versus something like fitness. I think part of it varies from franchisee based on the stage they came in. And that goes back to what we said earlier, right? The earlier you come in, you can negotiate for more and probably carve out say, county lines. So say, I get to build everything within this county. That's a big layer of protection if, say, you get a whole county in a state. I know folks who have multiple counties, at this point, probably multiple states. But early on, right, when you're negotiating your territory, you can actually get that broad from and say, I want to build X amount in this county, and, and they'll carve it out for you. And that's your territory. Whereas the fast food chains, the big ones today, 
that's on a zip code basis. You could have, be splitting up territories within zip codes where, especially in urban areas and cities, it's more just they're picking out streets that are yours. If we're talking about like the big boys, like the KFCs and the Popeyes of the world, I mean, they're doing so much national marketing and the foot traffic is coming in. A lot of those brands, and there's probably a broader lesson here about just the real estate in general, but a lot of those brands are right. It's more about securing the real estate and just being super convenient for folks because they know who you are. And obviously, there's a lot of health conscious consumers out there. But at the same time, America is the king of fast food, for better or worse. I'd say the territory is probably a little less important there. And it's more about just securing good real estate for your location. And that'll be the biggest driver of it. And when you think about Orange Theory, the ecosystem, I think franchisees and franchisors actually have pretty solid alignment of interests. The success needs to happen on both ends in order for the ecosystem to work. What are the main risks to a ecosystem like Orange Theory when you think about the next five years? This is really for any franchise system that's growing. It's one, not oversaturating the market where franchisees cannibalize one another. The extreme example of what not to do is Subway sold single units to anyone and everyone who could afford one. I might be exaggerating a bit here. I don't think they ever opened one in the same strip mall, but pretty damn close. And to them, what's the difference? They're making 8% of the revenue on every sandwich sold at all their franchisee stores. They don't care. So whoever ends up winning that fight, if one goes out of business, it's fine. They're still making money on every sandwich sold. But now fast forward to today, I mean, they have a lot of reputational issues for one. And then also they've closed about 5,000 stores since 2019, which is close to 20% of their footprint from that time period. So it can cause issues. So not overselling territories. And again, that's why negotiating as a franchisee is important so that you have that carved out territory so that someone can't come in right next to you, right? And open another location. But beyond that, it's also just from the franchisor. Once you do start hitting a point of saturation, if you can't necessarily open more units, how else do you grow revenue? It's increasing the royalties and maybe charging higher fees on that supply and distribution aspect of your business, which both I would say are not good ways to grow revenue because that's at the expense of the franchisee's profitability. The third way too is to bring on national promotions to maybe increase the average unit volume of all your franchisees, which that's a good thing because theoretically higher revenue would mean better profitability for your franchisees. But if you're doing national promotions that are heavily discounting the system services, sure, revenue may go up for your franchisee, but it could be unprofitable revenue. And a brand that did all three of those things, the things that I said not to do, which was sell too many locations, increase prices on their supplies, and do all those national promotions is Quiznos. They went from over 5,000 locations nationwide to today about 200 or less. Pretty epic collapse. They were effectively trying to compete with Subway doing $5 sub sandwich promotions, which their franchisees made no money on. And their franchisees were already having to buy napkins, the dough for the bread at above market cost than if they were just a mom and pop looking to buy those supplies. Doing those things, that's the wrong way to grow revenue. You really got to find a way to increase your franchisees' average unit volumes in a way that keeps them profitable and Chick-fil-A is just a fantastic example where year over year, their average unit volumes of their franchisees just increases by incredibly healthy percentages. And they've found a way to really just have customer buy-in 
And it seems like with every year that passes, they just get stronger and stronger. I didn't realize the sandwich brands and the graveyard that they left in the advertising <laughs> space, yeah. but it's a cautionary tale, I suppose. It is. It is. We close out these conversations with lessons. Do you think there's a key lesson that either operators can take or investors can take from Orange Theory's success and maybe something they did differently or something that you think can be replicated when approaching business in a different world? There's two things that stick out to me for the Orange Theory story, which is one, don't necessarily judge a book by its cover. Orange Theory in the first few years, it wouldn't have looked like the billion dollar plus success it is today. The reality is Orange Theory apparently wasn't super impressive back in the day. And obviously it's been a home run for any franchisee that joined on. So try not to judge a book by its cover. And that leads to the second point, which is focus more on the business model at first, because you can improve the brand and the marketing and things like that. But for Orange Theory, they clearly had a key differentiator back then in 2010, which was they were one of the first to market and the first to franchise and expand with a technology-driven boutique fitness workout. Again, that's a key differentiator that you can't just replicate overnight. There's tons of burger franchises. And at this point, you're competing on brand. Everyone just knows McDonald's. So they can open up a location and they're going to get customers at the door. But if you're trying to join some new burger franchise, what is actually the differentiator and why would it work in your market? Whereas Orange Theory had something back then that they were able to build a strong foundation off of, which was that, you know, the whole splat zone and heart rate theory and the technology of wearing the heart monitors and watching your caloric burn and all that during your workout. That was a serious differentiator. They obviously were able to take advantage of being one of the first movers there to now they have that 1500 locations. They're known for this workout and so that they have that reputation where they're one of the first places people look for boutique fitness workouts. Well, awesome, Wolf. I've consistently learned from everything you've written and you have an insane wealth of knowledge about franchises which you put on display in this conversation. Appreciate you joining us and coming on Business Breakdowns. Yeah, thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure to be on. Big fan of the shows. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 